0: Hello there, my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Anyone hearing this podcast who was lucky enough to have fished the English channel wrecks when offshore wrecking first became popular back in the 1970s will love this particular interview. And for those that didn't, well, listen in anyway and find out just what you missed because the quality of the fishing back then with lots of virgin wrecks loaded to the hilt with good quality fish just had to be experienced to be believed. The West Country, and Plymouth in particular, was pretty much the focal point of the UK wreck fishing scene at that time. But what a lot of people fail to realise is that many of the wrecks visited, particularly as the angling boats started pushing increasingly further off, were closer to the Channel Islands than they were to the Devon coast. So much so, that extended wreck fishing trips fishing on the way out and on the way back with a stopover at St Peterport and a day on the banks became an increasingly popular option. Then it slowly started to dawn on people, myself included, that if you went over to Guernsey itself and base yourself on the island, you could choose between the banks and the wrecks on a daily basis without the time-wasting journeys across. And at the forefront of both the wrecking and the bank fishing scene on the island from way back then, right up to present times, was and still is local skipper Dougal Lane and he's still fishing, albeit commercially, now in late 2011.
1: Now I'm fishing with hook and line and in the Pollock season we're fishing with what they call automatic jigging machines but we're actually using them as robot fishing rods really. We're fishing for Pollock with live bait and um, drifting over the wrecks out in the channel and we've got the machine set to spin just like you would with a rod. It's It's a very interesting way to fish. Multiple hooks, of course, not a single hook. The pollock finishes in July or something like that, and then we fish for bass right through till February, really, and that's all rod and line. And we fish commercially with rod and line, and normally a double hook trace, long flowing trace, and uh, you know we spin for the bass again, live sand bait, and that's going on now. It's just kicked in now. The, there's some lovely fish turning up now, so we've got a winter bass fishery that uh, we work this time of year.
0: Now, you and I go back a very long time, Thirty years, in fact, and in fishing terms, at least three boats, plus a lot of very good fish for myself and visiting parties from all over Europe. So with Guernsey not the easiest of angling venues to access, you must have been doing something right. But you wasn't always an angling boat skipper. In fact, in the fullest definition, you probably never was. More a case of mixing both sides of the fishing business as and when the need or opportunity arose. So take us back to the beginning. How did fishing become a way of life for you? Well, I started out diving, actually. I was, uh, I was, I was
1: in the building trade, and I, I learnt to dive. And in the winter, there was no amateur diving boat, so I started going with the commercial guys that were diving for scallops. And gradually, I got into the, to the scallop diving, and then I gave up the working ashore completely, and I was full-time uh, diving for scallops. And when you're diving, you only, you only sort of work half or, or two-thirds of the day, really. You know, you're limited on bottom time and what you can do. So i so I got a small boat and and was working a few pots and nets and things. It was a twenty one foot boat actually, and I set it up for for trawling in a small way and One of the local um merchant navy skippers built himself a trawler for his for spare time and it cost him more money than he expected, so he realized that he had to put it working you know more hours and he offered me the brand new boat to run and uh, so I went into trawling and it was it was a A 10-metre boat, 33-foot boat with 120 holes forward, which was sort of fairly standard then. And we did all right with it in the winter when the trawling was good. But come the summertime, we were sort of stuck for something to do. So we started going out and fishing the wrecks with hand lines originally, and and that wasn't very successful. So we, we were using rod and line, and that would be 79 or 80 or something like that. And then the local anglers, of course, got to hear that we were out there catching. All, I mean, there was huge amount of fish that, you know, that there was hundreds of tons of fish on, on some of the wrecks that they were stacked up with ling and, and uh, cod and mutton, pollock in the season. Um, but the local anglers heard about it and, and started wanting to come along on the weekends. And I ended up with more anglers wanting to go than I could handle. So I started putting together charter trips, really. It, was, it wasn't planned. It just happened that way. Well, certainly the the main change from those very early days is the ling stock. When when I first started, I believe ling was the most common whitefish in the English Channel. Every wreck you went to, you'd do half a ton a day, three quarters of a ton a day, no problem at all with eight or ten anglers. And now you've got a job. To, there's only a, you know a handful of wrecks in the channel that have actually got any ling on at all. They're next to nothing. Partly because the wrecks have been very heavily netted over the years, and ling is very easy to catch. But also because when I first started, most of the trawlers working the channel worked the smooth ground. They, the trawl gear they had was only good for, you know, the smoother patches in the channel. So, and the ling generally lived on the rough ground. And gradually over the years, the French in particular have developed gear that will, will work rougher ground. And they're now towing over just about anything. And the ling stocks have really gone down, you know. The cod and pollock, although seasonal, but they always were seasonal, this year in particular, we had fantastic cod season in the summer. There was some real big cod and plenty of them. And the pollock, the same. I mean, we had pollock first week of February, I think we started this year. And uh, we had as big a pollock there and as many as I've ever seen. So, you know, it's um, there's a lot more people out there so perhaps, you know, there's more effort. A lot more private boats, of course. Boats have come down in price. the Electronics have come down in price. A lot more people have got more efficient boats than when we first went out there. But uh, those stocks seem to be holding very well, but Ling in particular seems to have gone.
0: Looking at the fishing in a little more detail now, can we start by taking a closer look at the offshore banks?
1: The banks? Well, what we used to do, when particularly when we first started, when we have relatively slow boats, well, they were slow boats, we used to work the banks on the spring tides with the first charter parties and uh, the wrecks on the smaller tides. And when we first started going to, to Albany, the south banks of Albany, which was one of my favourite stamping grounds, If you had half a dozen bass in a day, it was was a good day. And if you had one bass per person, if you had 12 anglers, which is what we used to take, if you had 12 bass, you know, if they'd caught one each, that was fantastic. That was in the local press. So bass were quite a a rare item, where flatfish, particularly turbot, they were very common. I mean, we used to do 20 flatties a day, you know, and and if there wasn't a 20-pounder in there, it was a rare day, really. But it's gone almost full circle now, where particularly in the early 90s, the the bass increased dramatically, and and we were doing a 100 bass in a couple of hours with a charter party, and it got to the stage where anglers really didn't want to catch bass. It was too easy. And the flatfish went down, certainly did, um, did go down there for a few years, and then that's come up again now. The bass seems to be dropping off a little bit, and they're getting very skittish, hard to find, where the flatfish have increased dramatically. They're not so big, or perhaps they are, perhaps there were as many big ones as there ever was, but there's so many small flatfish the last two or three years. I mean, the charter boats are doing 50 or 60 a day regularly, on particularly the shoal bank, which is the bank with the smaller flatfish. But the caskets and, and Albany South Banks have been giving very well as well. There's certainly no, no lack of fish.
0: Have you noticed any difference in terms of mix of balance then between the turbot and the brill?
1: Well, no, there's more flatfish than ever. There's no doubt about, it. I mean, we've never seen flatfish on the banks like there's been the last couple of years. They've, 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 they've increased dramatically. Even the trawlers, I mean, they've always caught a lot of brill, but very few turbot really, where this year in particular and last year, they're catching as many turbot as they are brill. And that's a lot of fish, a lot of flatfish, you know, the, the shoal bank, there must be five or six thousand flatfish coming off there with the angling fleet in the summer, I'm sure. Um, there's a huge amount of fish coming off there. And the English charter boats come over, of course, and they they stay on it all day, every day, so they do take a lot. But it seems to be holding very well. And, you know, you still hear some uh, nice 20, 30 pound turbot being caught. But there's a lot more effort. There's a lot more, again, a lot more private boats out there. You know, everybody and, and their brothers got, uh, a fast 20 or 30 foot or 25 foot or something like that with a big outboard on the back. And electronics, you know, you can buy a, a navigator now for, 200 quid, where I, when I first started, it was almost the cost of a house a year to rent one, so it's things have changed
0: in that way. Now, I know that you don't do too much very close into shore, but just for completeness, how are the inshore stocks also holding up? There's a couple of charter
1: boats operating locally now that specialise in real short trips, you know, half day trips and, or, or a day trip and then an evening trip, and they've had uh, marvellous fishing. The pollock inshore, particularly this year, the pollock round the reefs inshore within 10 miles of the harbour, really, has been very, very good. You know, they've had as much as ever. And lots of species. The black bream, we've had several years now of massive black bream shoals around the island, which start generally in July or August. And this year was no exception. They they caught a lot of black bream between Herm and Sark, what we call the Big Russell, which is an area of of reef and and mixed bottom through there. They had some fantastic fishing through there, and, and they didn't really have to go any further than that all summer. They had all the fish they wanted for their charter parties, which is
0: marvellous, really. The logical next question, I suppose, has to be, why is Guernsey furring much better than the rest of the UK? What makes the Channel Island so special?
1: I mean, I don't know how the rest of the country is doing it. From the commercial scene, which I, I'm in contact with quite a few people, they seem to think that a lot of stocks are actually going up. There are so few fishing boats now left in the EU pond, you know, because they've scrapped so many that the fish stocks seem to be going up quite quickly, the, certainly the cod stock in the North Sea and um, uh, we've seen a lot more haddock here now, we've never seen haddock in the past and they seem to be increasing down here. So it's, I don't know how much it, your way it seems to be dropping off but I'm not sure about other places. But of course we, we've always had strong tides around here. We get ten knots around Albany there on a, on a big tide and, and six or eight knots around here and, and uh, Sark. and. It sort of limits what you can do, really. There's there's nowhere near the netting round here. There is other places, which is a major problem further west in the Channel, and you know monofilament netting really is very very efficient, but it's very limited round here because of the tides. You just can't use them. They they fill up with weed or roll up or whatever. So there there is sort of an, an a natural reserve really round the Channel
0: Islands with the tides. Now one fish I do remember catching with you though never in great numbers as the decline had already set in even in those early days, was the red bream. We used to get good numbers of them out from Lou over the Eddiston Reef back in the 1970s, but now you'd be lucky even to see one in a season. So what do you think happened there?
1: Well, certainly the, um, the French took a lot of red bream, and when I, when I was a teenager, you could go out in the evening, in any, you know, late late summer, you could go out anywhere around the island really and catch all the red bream you wanted, 200 in the evening we used to do regularly. And off the shore there was plenty. And I think mid eighties or early eighties the French developed the technology for midwater trawling. Or oh, the Danes developed it, but the French took it on big time, you know, mid eighties. And they pretty well wiped out the the red bream stock locally. They were fishing south of the island between Guernsey and, and what they call the Roche Douve, which is a French reef, French owned reef. And they pretty well knocked that right down. And they've never really come back. I mean we see a few red bream now. But we don't see many. At that time, you didn't see many black bream. You know, when I first started on the wrecks, like I say, early 80s there or, or late 70s, in the, in August, for instance, you, you know, you catch 20 or 30 fine big red bream on a, on a wreck and think nothing of it. But if you saw two or three black bream, you were over the moon. And it's gone full circle. You know, I had some friends over this time last year, and we were catching a hundred or two hundred black bream a day, just outside the pierheads, basically. And decent black bream, not massive, but two pounders, nice fish. So they seem to have dramatically increased the black bream, where the red breams dropped off. But we have seen, or we are seeing, a lot more tropical bream. We've got, um raised bream, gilthead bream, white bream, stri- striped bream, in all the bays now. We've got the, the, the Mediterranean bream, I suppose, are coming north with the, the warmer waters all round the island really, Cooch's bream in particular. They started about ten years ago, perhaps a bit more than that. And then last year we had some sort of up to nine pounds in massive ones, you know, when they first arrived they were tiny. So things certainly have changed in that respect. The bream seem to be really increasing uh, dramatically.
0: Now I hear you've been appointed president of the Guernsey Fishermen's Association, so perhaps you should tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> well, the
1: reason I'm president of the it's the Guernsey Professional Fishermen's Association. And as in most places now, there's, there's less professional fishermen than there used to be. And it gets harder and harder to make a living. But it's mainly on the political side, really. When something comes up, whether it's a harbour development or proposed underwater turbines or a wind farm or something like that, the fishermen need representing. If when they propose to change the laws, whether it's to stop something or, or you know, one particular type of fishing or whether it's to allow a type of fishing you know a new type of fishing we need to have meetings and vote on the the subject otherwise what happens is if if you don't have some sort of representative body the politicians just find somebody that, that agrees with them and and use them as an example to say it's fine so you need some sort of representative body for for the profession since the introduction of licensing from the EU to us through Britain the limits around Guernsey and Jersey have been very grey. When the EU was set up, they totally ignored the islands because it was too difficult to sort out. And gradually over the years, Jersey got their three-mile and then their 12-mile territorial seas. The boundary between Bailiwick of Guernsey, which is and Albany and Guernsey, and the French coast was was sorted out, The, the, the limits were set. So that stopped the French coming in that side. And then just recently, in the last two years, the Baileywick Fisheries Management Agreement has been signed so they've then taken that to the UK and negotiated with the UK and of course devolved countries now have to be involved and we, we're now extending our limits because we've we've only got to 3 mile limits at the moment and then between the 3 and the 12 mile there is no law, there's no limits there's no quotas or anything between the 3 and the 12 mile and that's been the case you know, ever since that system was set up but hopefully next year that that loophole will be closed, and we will be able to license English fishing vessels in that area, or British fishing vessels rather in that area. the French have historic rights to fish there between the six and the 12. And you know while this has all, all this been going on for many, many years, but certainly the last two years it's been you know increasing dramatically the amount of effort. I've been involved in that, all the associations have been involved, and in, I've had a lot of meetings with, with the fisheries departments. so. That's basically what I do with that, Phil.
0: And presumably, boats and Melts were in the EU, won't be allowed
1: in. No, no, the Dutch, Spanish, um Belgians, all those, they have to stay outside the 12 mile. 1963, I think, when it was set up, and it was historic rights, and the French fished in our waters at that time for certain species. And the way the system was set up, they said where they fished, and they fished on the west and the south of the island, and... They didn't fish very much at all to the east of the islands, because the ports along the French coast there had small boats so they didn't come out very far at that time. And they fished for certain species. They asked for crabs and lobsters and crayfish and demersal species, but they said they didn't fish for scallops or queens, or perhaps they didn't say they didn't fish for them, but they didn't say they did fish for them, so that they you know they didn't get them. And then cuttlefish and squid at the time wasn't really thought of as a a major catch, so they didn't ask for them, so they can't fish for those in our waters. So they've got historic rights to fish there, but under certain conditions. And under this new regulation, we will have control out to 12 mile. But we won't really have control over the French. They'll have historic, you know, continue with their historic rights to fish there. But recently, they've had a problem with Dutch companies buying up French boats and rigging them up for, for Danish seining, which is, you know, fishing, trawling with, with ropes on the bottom, long, long ropes on the bottom. And it's very, very efficient. Where they work, they absolutely clean the ground. And the French trawlers coming behind can't catch anything. So the French have asked us recently to have discussions about limiting what the French can do in our waters, which is the only way it, it could go ahead. So that will be interesting next year, I think.
0: There's the evidence, then, if ever it were needed, that so far as fisheries go, EU membership isn't all it's cracked up to be.
1: Well, the deal that's been negotiated, we've actually got no quotas inside 12 mile. You know, we've got such a small fleet, and the way we've always fished is that we fish what turns up in our waters. Basically, we don't go very far, other than the wreck fishing. We only fish, you know, locally around the islands, and because we fish locally around the islands we don't affect the stocks if you know what i mean you know if we have a load of pollock turn up this year or a load of bass or or a heap of conga turns up or whatever we stay on the same ground and just change our method of fishing so long term we don't have any disastrous effect on on, on any particular stock so the deal that's been agreed is we won't we haven't got quotas in our waters but we can't increase our fishing fleet so it's it's actually a very good deal for us
0: yeah it sounds it yeah moving away from the commercial pressure and politics now both of which have the part to play in what's available to anglers and why, my first trip out with you was as a holidaymaker, probably back in the early 1980s. If I remember right, you were operating Erin back then, which was quite a small wooden boat.
1: It was, and, and that's the one that was built for the um, Merchant Navy Skipper. It was locally built, and it was supposed to be, I think, if I remember rightly, the air was supposed to be sort of 28 foot or something like that, and it was built by a local fisherman who built quite a few wooden boats, he was very good at it. And when the keel turned up, the bit of wood was so nice he wouldn't cut it. So it ended up at thirty plus foot. And um a typical French design, if you know what I mean, big flared bow on it, nice sturdy machine, like I say, hundred and twenty horse, and probably about seven knots top end, you know. So when we first started it was if we went to the the more distant wrecks you had to start very early in the morning to get to get out there six or seven hours steaming. But when you wherever you went, whichever wreck you went to,
0: you filled the boat up basically you didn't have to move round very much. And many of those fish, both at anchor and on a slow drift, were big, good quality ling, which as you've already said, have now all but gone.
1: Yeah, okay, um, actually I, I should carry on with the Aaron really, because she was built as a, as a trawler, and we were limited on deck space, and we had no fish room on it, and when we first started going out there we used to put um, a 20 cubic foot chest freezer, an old one, you know, that, that didn't run, we were just using it as an insulated container really, and we used to stick that on the deck and fill it up with ice, and then fill it up with fish as we we caught the fish, and then and take the, you know take the ice out, and then sort of by I don't know midday or one o'clock or something like that, you'd be putting the fish in fish boxes on deck and using the last of the ice to ice the fish down. Um, so it wasn't really ideal for the job, but it was a very pleasant way to fish. And like I say, there was so much fish there really, you didn't need the speed. Once you got there, you had all you wanted. And what was the next one, Phil? Sorry.
0: The quality of the ling back then was fantastic compared to its virtual non-existence these days. Well,
1: when we first went out there, I mean, Morris's wreck, which is, mm, at the, which certainly at the time was the first one we had off the west coast, which was about nine miles off the the west coast of the island, and um, that was the first one we came to, it. and that for, I don't know, twenty years, perhaps more, that we fished it, there was all the ling you wanted on it. If you know, if if you had a party that just wanted to catch ling. And from a charter skipper's point of view, it was very easy. You just went, unless they particularly wanted to to catch cod or pollock or conger or something, you just went to a, a wreck and, and went down, normally with perks. I mean, particularly um, in the summer when there was a few cod about, used to fish perks, and always one or two hooks above a perk as well. And you'd try for cod to start with when you got to a wreck, and and pollock as well on the, on the perks. And then to catch the ling, generally speaking, you'd just stick a bit of mackerel or something on the perk. And like you say, as you just said, there was a lo- Most of them, I would have said, were over twenty pound, and there was there was enough of them over thirty pound to make it interesting. And we, we half a ton a day, three quarters of a ton a day, was wasn't out of the way at all. And now, well, if we get a couple of hundred kilo in a day, fishing with bait on the bottom, you know, or even anchoring up, which is much more efficient than, than on the drift, which is how we used to fish. Very hard. There's two or three wrecks we know west of the island. Again, almost due west of the island, and they're right in the bottom of the herd deep. They're in in a hundred, hundred and ten meters of water. They've got ling on, but uh, there's very few now. And there's no there's no small ling. The, the rough ground used to be covered in small ling. If you you know if you put pots or a net or a long line or anything anywhere around the island in the deep water on the rough ground, you you caught ling everywhere. And, and now there's very few. So I don't know if it's overfishing or if it's the perhaps the the increase in the water temperature, which you know we we know is is happening. I'm not sure, but uh, certainly there's nowhere near the stock of ling there used to be.
0: On the subject of anchoring, I remember one trip in particular where we had a go for conger, which we caught plenty of, plus loads of very big ling. We also picked up quite a few nice tope as well, but of course conditions weren't always favourable for doing that. What then were the main considerations in your mind when coming to either an anchoring or drift fishing decision?
1: <laughs> um, well, when we first started wreck fishing, I mean, I started with the Arum, which was, you know, a, a 30-foot trawler. And then I had Midnight Moon, which was 45-foot uh, light trawler, really. It was a um, beautiful charter boat in, in some respects, loads of deck space. The wheelhouse had room right around it, so you could fish right from the bow to the stern. There was all the, the space you needed. And you you know it did eight knots or eight and a half knots and all the comfort you wanted and and you didn't need the speed because there was plenty of fish, and we drifted all the time with that. We we I don't think I ever anchored with that boat or perhaps for Ray or something inshore, but never never offshore. It just wasn't necessary. You had all the fish you wanted on the drift, and then in '91 I built the Midnight Express, which was um, a 43 foot Aquastar, and I actually set that one up for anchoring. It had it had um. A, a winch specifically designed and installed for anchoring. And it had a box below deck directly under the winch where the anchor rope went into. So it was very easy to anchor. And we did more and more of it. Partly because you had to, to get, it's much more efficient if you can get the boat in one place for several hours than it is drifting round. Um but also because people wanted to fish for conger. At that time I was doing a lot of trade with the continent, particularly Dutch and, and Belgium. And those guys wanted to catch conger. Um, they wanted to catch big conger, you know, some of it was catch and release and some of it I actually, I landed, but they wanted to catch big fish and, and that was the way to do it. And inshore as well, we did quite a lot of anchoring for, for ray and tope. We have fantastic tope stocks around the island, particularly up around Alderney in the summer there. There's massive shoals of female tope, you know, 50, 60, 70 pounders. So, um, anchoring was, you know, is the way to catch those as well. So we did more and more of it. And we used always used a full coiler rope, which is 220 meters, and 20 meters of chain on the end of that. And then, depending on the bottom, if you're any any mud or sand that that sort of bottom, we used a Bruce anchor because it would go into the bottom instantly. And particularly when you're trying to anchor a wreck, you know the the anchor has to go exactly where you put it. Otherwise, you know you miss your target. You end up in the wrong place. And if the bottom was stony, or, we've got one area around here where um, it's degraded limestone, and what's left is sort of football-sized flints, very difficult to anchor in. And for that, we always used a CQR, quite a 45 kilo or 50 kilo CQR, and that did the job very well. But the CQR wasn't quite so good on, on the sand or or, uh, or gravel where the Bruce was.
0: I suppose to a certain extent, with Tord being quite widespread around much of mainland UK, there wouldn't be that much call for them from visitors when there were lots of other clean round species that would perhaps be more appealing. In particular, I'm thinking here of undulate rays, good blonde rays and small-eyed rays, but obviously there's a lot more to it even than that. So can you fill in a bit more detail about the fishing in terms of species, techniques and timing out over the banks?
1: Yes, well, inshore fishing, with um, charter fishing in particular, has always been drift fishing locally, drifting across the banks for flat fishing, Bass and pollock and that sort of stuff, gurnards. But when you, as soon as you put an anchor down, you actually change the type of fish you catch on the same ground. You catch ray and you catch tote, you catch, catch bull husks, smooth hounds, all that sort of stuff. Over time, really, you know, we anchored up different places. We also tried uptiding, you know, which has to be shallow water. We tried it in deeper water with heavier leads and it never really geed. But when we anchored up deep water, if, if you anchor up on, right on the top of the banks, which is sort of 20 metres on top of the banks, that sort of area. And in, in some of the bays around Alderney, you catch nearly all blonde rays and you fish, you have to fish with sand eel bait really for blonde rays to get the best of them. But if you go off the side of the banks, it's a lot more interesting. There's a lot more variety and you can fish a variety of baits. You can fish fish baits as well as your, as your, your sand eel baits. And you get undulates and you get the taupe and smooth hands and all that sort of stuff. So, you can target what you want really by where you anchor and how deep it is and the type of bottom, and we had some very very interesting fishing uh fishing for ray and particularly in in the autumn when uh, when they come inshore and you know we get bad you get bad weather and if you've got a charter party for a week which was most of my guys used to come over for a week they want to fish every day and as a as a charter skipper you then have to put your thinking head on because if it's blowing a gale from one direction you have to go in the in the lee of either Guernsey or, or Herm or Sark. And then because you're limited where you can go, you then have to fish for what you think will be in that area. So you have to get your thinking head on it and probably anchor up and fish a variety of baits. I mean if sometimes we were right up in the bays and we were fishing um, you know, worm baits or or crab baits and things for rass and, and inshore fish and bream as well in the autumn, the guys get a good day's angling. They have to change their tackle and, and sort themselves out. To use the baits for the fish that are there, but it's it's an interesting day.
0: I suppose that being one of the UK's most southerly outposts, you're also gonna see what we would term unusual species on a far more regular basis than elsewhere, both on Rodden and Line and commercially too. <laughs> we get a
1: huge amount of different types of fish. We get electric rays, we get a lot of stingray here. We used to get um white skate travels they're called locally, and you know they go to sort of hundred and fifty, hundred and eighty pound. And the last one I remember was sort of 10 years ago, and that was about £70. But we never caught one on on rod and line. I've seen them on long lines. I've seen them in a trawl. And we get proper monkfish, fiddlefish, they call them locally, but, you know, the proper monkfish, which is like a sort of um, anglerfish-shaped dogfish, basically. But I've, again, never seen one on rod and line. I've seen anglers on rod and line, and most other, you know, sharks. We Most seasons we would have several blue sharks and, and always a few poor beagles. Tangled up with with fresher sharks a few times, basking sharks. We were anchored up one day, and a basking shark swam through the lines, and that was on for about ten or fifteen minutes, six or seven ton. I mean, that was quite amusing. And we've seen tuna going through here once or twice, you know, blue fins and that sort of stuff, but never hooked one. Well. And, and I know now that there's swordfish in this area. A friend of mine has caught two or three swordfish just north of Albany there, in the edge of the herd, deep in in a. I mean, fishing commercially, but they certainly are there. But it, I always used to keep account every year when I was of fishing. I always used to keep account, and I had you know a fish identification book or several on the boat, but one in particular. And as we caught each species throughout the season, I ticked them off in the book. And I think my best season was forty-three or forty-five different species, and that's including you know the the gurnards and the and the inshore ras, the small ras, and the sharks and that sort of stuff. But very interesting fishing, really. But I suppose. Your basic diet throughout the season was about 10 different species really.
0: My boat partner Dave Devine, who was one of the pioneers of dinghy wrecking along the Lancashire coast, reckons that you are the best wrecking skipper for anchoring that he has ever been out with. He often cites a trip we did in very lumpy conditions when you appeared to motor out with no searching about, sent the anchor down, tied it off and bang, there was the wreck on the echo sounder screen. Very impressive, but we all know it's not as simple as that.
1: <laughs> well, of course when we started wreck fishing we were, we were fishing with deca navigators and they did wander a little bit depending on the atmospheric conditions. But we were very lucky here in that you, you, know how it, well, the deca navigator has three separate transmitters. A red transmitter, a green transmitter and a, and a purple transmitter. That's how it comes up on the machine. And our red transmitter is in, the local one was in Jersey. So that was our most accurate you know, the closer you are to the transmitter, the less atmospheric problems you have. So our red was the most accurate, and luckily enough, off the west coast of the island, where we would do most of our wreck fishing, the tide ran up and down the red lanes. So to anchor a wreck, within reason, you could run straight up. If you were anchoring the ebb, which runs to the southwest, you could run up to the northeast away from the wreck, which would be almost straight up the red lane, you had to allow a little bit of east or west, depending on the, on the, on the wind. And then you would shoot the anchor. And, and when I first started, probably it, it took me a couple of years to, to get, get it down to a T. And then by the time you're talking about, which I think was probably Midnight Express, we were on satellite navigators, which were much, much more accurate. And we had a plotter aboard the boat, so you could actually go to the wreck and Go to the position, exact position you wanted to be when you were anchored. So you would be, you know, 25 or 30 yards or 50 yards depending on the tide in front of the wreck. And then you would move the cursor on the plotter up tide exactly one tenth of a mile. And the full coil of rope that we used is perfect at one tenth of a mile. And preferably about one and a half knots of tide is is ideal. So, When you've got all that set up, you then, well, as you know, I used to to flake the the anchor chain along the gunnel, and I would motor up, and as I passed the spot that I'd calculated the anchor had to go, my crew would throw the anchor, and I would come hard round on it and motor back towards the wreck, and before that anchor, you know, in 70 or 80 metres of water, before that anchor hit the bottom, my crew would be pulling on the rope so that As the anchor hit the bottom, you were keeping the anchor chain away from the anchor. So it all shot in a straight line. And then before you got back to the wreck, you would come round again, back on the way you'd come, and the anchor rope would go slack on the surface. And then you would tie it off. And as as the boat drifted down and the anchor ramp came tight, if you got it, all the calculations done correctly, you would be 30 yards in front of the wreck, ready to fish. And because our tide turns all day, I mean... It runs basically north at high water and south at low water, and it turns anti-clockwise. So when you set up the wreck, depending on the state of tide, or the time of the tide rather, you would set up one end of the wreck. So if you were fishing the ebb, for instance, you would set up on the northwest end of the wreck to start with. Then as the, the ebb ran, it gradually runs through, goes from, starts at almost west and ends up at south, so you would swing the whole length of the wreck gradually over three or four hours, and if you got it right, you you know
0: you uh, you had a nice long time to fish and plenty of fish coming up. I remember you once saying to me that you could think and visualise things in deck as an automatic response. Obviously, as you've explained, it also had its drawbacks, and now, out of necessity, you've switched to GPS. So, with your history of successfully working with both, how, in your mind, do the two compare?
1: <laughs> how does Decker compare to GPS well I was brought up on Decker you know I'm I'm an old man now relatively speaking and half my fishing career we, we worked on Decker Navigators and the channel was laid out in coloured blocks basically and numbered blocks and, and if someone said to you you know I was fishing in the Jays today you would know that's 12 miles west of the island to 18 miles west of the island and, and they would say you know J's and B's or J's and C's or whatever it was, and you knew exactly where they were because you knew that that the the colour blocks that you were using. And all the wrecks were in numbers. Everybody now from here, all the amateurs included, that fish satellite navigators now, they still talk of the I-20. The I-20 is a wreck that we have about 18 miles northwest of the island, just on the edge of the herd deep. But it was the I-20 when I first found it on Decker that was the Decker number, and it's still called the I twenty. We've got the the J ten, and I four, and then the next one out from the I four is called the thirty Milers. Now it's thirty Milers because when you come round the corner of the island on the modern navigator, it's thirty miles to run. So it it mixes a bit. But originally, you know, myself and and the the Plymouth and Dartmouth Brixham chart skippers, we'd talk to each other all the time, and it was always Decker numbers, and and you just build up a. a a chart or you know, in your head of the whole channel of, of these blocks of of colors and numbers.
0: Okay so you've got a set of rec coordinates and you're homing in on the target. With GPS actually getting over it is probably the easiest part. The real skill comes when you arrive. What can be done to get the best out of that situation? So what I'd like to do now is put you in exactly that position from a drift fishing point of view. Well
1: when we first went out Phil with the deck of navigators Some days they were very, very inaccurate. And when I first started, we used to shoot an anchor and buoy to see which way the tide was going and and to mark one end of the wreck or to start your drift from or whatever. But you soon find that as the tide turns, here in particular, because it turns all day, it would be in your way. You know, you'd be hooking it with the lines or you'd get a good, if you put it behind the wreck, or at some stage it would end up behind the wreck and then you'd drift into it with a good fish on or something like that. So it became a problem. And you very quickly learnt that you were better off just working on the numbers. Providing that the atmospheric conditions were good and the decker was working that particular day, you were better off just calculating the numbers in your head. And that's literally what you did. You constantly calculated two different decker numbers to get you in the right place. When we changed over to satellite navigators, at the same time, well the first ones actually gave us decker numbers, but they gave us accurate decker numbers, so we had better position fixing. And then we, we started, we went over to plotters, and I would think most people now have a plotter of some sort, even if it's only a, a four inch screen or six inch screen, there is actually a plotter on it. And I, I mean, I've never worked just on Latin long, if you know, what I mean, I, I'm sure that if I, that, I mean, I have done this, and I'll say for that I have, because when I've looked for wrecks, when well, I've only had Latin long numbers, so I have done the calculations in my head. But most people now, I would think, have a small plotter, and, I always go to the wreck, to the numbers, to the, to the latitude and longitude of the wreck and put a mark. If I haven't been to that wreck before, I go to the position that I'm, that I've got and I put a mark and then I put it on track, which I think most, even most small plotters have. And then you just go, you go round and round those numbers depending on the tide. You go up and down the, the tide or across the tide and hopefully, you know, something comes up on the sounder.
0: How far upside of a wreck then would you start your drift? And what species, or in what order, would species be expected to show?
1: Oh, I see what you mean. Um, well, it depends on the depth to some extent. Most of the wreck fishing around here is between 70 and 80 metres. And if you're fishing pollock and ling and cod on the wreck, then you only have to go up far enough to drop down, if you know what I mean. So you want to be on the bottom, comfortably set up, 30 yards in front of the wreck. So depending on the depth of water and, and the, speed of the, uh, the speed of the drift, I mean, sometimes we're working in sort of three and a half knots of tide. And then um, at that time, you have to go up tenth of a mile, perhaps. But we have got one or two wrecks, and you must have the same, where there is a hole or, or a, a reef or something ahead of the wreck or behind the wreck. And that, some days, the fish is all on in that gully or on that bit of reef the I-20 that I mentioned before that that particular wreck there's a a gully a tenth of a mile ahead of that one so on a spring tide I mean the reason we found it on a spring tide you have to go that far up to um, get down comfortably particularly with, with rank amateurs aboard if you know what I mean with a charter party you have to go up that, that far to give them time to get down and the ones that were down first were getting fish straight away, fine big cod so we now know that a tenth of a mile ahead of the wreck there is a gully that some days actually holds more fish than the wreck, and we've got other wrecks that, that have got a scour in front and you have to drop you know the best of the fishing is is that in that scour in front sometimes it's on east or west end of the wreck you know the depend on on how hard or soft the bottom is. they're all different, and sometimes the the fish is spread out two hundred yards behind the wreck you know you can drift for a long way and still catch fish, but that's unusual. I can think of one or two wrecks up towards the, the north of Albany towards the middle of the channel where there is actually a sand bank it must be one and a half tenths of a mile in front of the wreck and as the tide slackens you know it's a very good wreck for Pollock the fish will be 10 or 20 metres above the wreck and as the tide slackens they just disappear and they actually go out to this sandbank. there must be sand eels or, or bait or something on this sand bank and almost every slack water the fish all moves off the wreck and goes out to this sandbank and then as the tide starts to run hard again, they come back to the wreck.
0: And when Pollock are over a wreck, what is it that takes them so high up in the water column? Are either they or the prey riding the pressure wave deflected up by the tide hitting the obstruction? I don't rightly know.
1: I'm not sure whether the the Pollock are actually above the wreck, because you don't generally see them thick above the wreck if you know what I mean, or whether they follow your bait up because, you know, invariably we all spin for Pollock, it's it's the way, they they like something to chase. But, I mean, I've seen them 60 or 70 turns on your reel handle above the wreck before they'll take your bait. Now, whether that's where the fish is or whether it's following you up and as the light level changes or finally it thinks that's going to get away from me, I'm not sure. I don't honestly know what the answer is, but that some days that's where they want to take the bait. And, I mean, that the robot fishing rods we're using now, the jigger machines we're using now, it's got a constant readout on the side and it it gives you your your line length at all times. And if you're catching them at 50 metres or 45 metres or 35 metres of line out, you'll catch them for half an hour, an hour at that depth. So whatever, whether it's the pressure wave pushing them up, and I mean, some of the wrecks now, since I started fishing them, you know they're much flatter now than they used to be. They're gradually degrading with the, the steel rotting away and things. So the pressure wave now is a lot less than it used to be, but the Pollock is still high above the wreck. So I'm not convinced it's the pressure wave. But certainly when the tide is running very hard, you can get the fish in front of the wreck, and that's the pressure wave then. It just slows down for twenty five yards in front of the wreck. And I know that from diving, you know, you can it's surprising on a ten meter wreck how much slack water there is just in front of the wreck, but not above it, but, but
0: actually in front of it. Same positioning questions again but this time for anchoring a wreck, picking out the different species as you go along. (laughs)
1: Well, the last point there, it depends entirely on what you're fishing for. I mean, if you're fishing for for cod, for instance, you want to be well ahead of the wreck. And then once you get anchored up, you want to be well ahead of the wreck. I I don't know. It's a job to know in distance how far it is. I mean, I know when I'm doing it, how far I am ahead of the wreck, if you know what I mean. But whether it's must be 50 yards or 60 yards ahead of the wreck or something like that I suppose because in in 70 meters of water by the time you hit the bottom you must have 100 meters of line out and then if you don't get a bite in in a few seconds really you can lift your lead up and bounce your providing there's a little bit of tide you can bounce your gear back to the wreck it's much easier to put a lighter lead on and lift your lead and bounce it back to the wreck than it is to put a great big heavy lead because you're too close so you're you're always better off too far ahead of the wreck to start with, and you can always lengthen up a little bit of rope rather than the anchor too short and be too close to the wreck because if you're too close to the wreck besides losing a massive gear, you know there's only really a conger that's, that's right in the wreck, and if if you hook them right in the wreck, you can't get them out or it's very difficult to get them out, so you're, you're better off ahead of the wreck slightly, even for conger and make the fish come to you and Certainly the ling and cod are ahead of the wreck, and, and I've had a lot of success. Perking when the collar there, perking in front of the, you know, on anchor in front of the wreck. That's very efficient. You lose very little gear because your, your perks actually don't go into the wreck. We're drifting, you know, yourself how hard it is to keep a perk out of a wreck. But on anchor, it's, it's very efficient. And, you know, after, I don't know what it is, 10 or 15 perking motions, then you have to wind back up halfway up or something like that and drop down again. So you're back under the boat. And, uh, that works well. And same for Pollock. I, I, this year, we were anchored up, um, for, for cod and, and conger. Uh, we're using uh, cuttlefish heads for bait, which is a very, very effective bait for, for cod over here late season. And I was fishing for pollock with the machines with a long flowing trace and, and doing very, very well on anchor. I'm, I'm convinced that, that next year I'm going to do a lot more of it because it's so much more efficient in time where when you're on the drift, you're actually only in the you know the catch or kill zone for sort of 10% or 15% of your time where... And the rest of the time, you're either drifting in front of the wreck to get to the position or drifting behind the wreck with your fish coming up, or motoring back up, where on anchor, once you actually get in position, you can continue to pull all the time. So it's a very efficient way to fish. But as for the distance in front of the wreck, it depends entirely on on what you're fishing for and the depth of water. But I would say you're always better off fishing you you know, too, too far in front of the wreck to start, but you can always let some more rope out and... Drop back to the wreck rather than shorten up. If you shorten up on your anchor rope, bloody anchor jumps very often and, uh, then your anchor's going towards the wreck. The wind, I like to anchor up in about one and a half or two knots of tide, which is quite difficult to fish in, but it's much easier to get the boat in the right position. If you're, if there's a little drop of tide, one and a half or two knots of tide, if you're not quite in the right position, you can always move the tying point on the bow. If you, if you move it one side or the other, you know, the boat slides across the tide slightly. And you can, you can use that to get you in position. Where, when the, the, the tide gets below one knot, if there's the slightest breeze, you know, you, you blow off the wreck very quickly. Even though you've allowed a little bit of, of east or west in, in your anchor position for the, uh, for the wind. It's, as soon as that tide drops below one knot, it's a job to hold. And and I would normally get to a wreck and, and if, if I was intending to anchor straight away I would get to a wreck and, and still do, you know, half a dozen drifts if there's any breeze at all to calculate how much the wind is pushing you across the tide, ready for anchoring.
0: Do you find sometimes, particularly when fishing baits, that if you get slightly ahead of a wreck, especially if it's lying on sand, that species not normally associated with a wreck such as turbot, rays and taupe, or even sharks come into the mix along with the conger and ling? Um, if you're in the in the exactly the right place for the wreck, you know
1: to fish the wreck, there are very little other fish there. There, there is very little other fish there. If you're off the wreck, you know, as if you swing off as the tide slackens off, you do particularly flatfish and things, tope, sharks, all all, that, as all those sort of fish you mentioned, you get those, but you don't very often get them. If if you're in the kill zone, if you're right in the de- the, the right spot for a wreck. There's only wrecked fish there. I think there's so much fish there, generally speaking, around here, that they keep the other fish off. Over the years, we've, you know, we've had turb, but we used to get a lot of angler fish. When we did a lot of perk fishing for cod in May and June, we used to get quite a lot of angler fish, and some very big ones as well, on the perks. But you don't very often get them on a bait. I mean, having seen underwater footage of, of angler fish feeding, they snap at something that moves very quickly, but they don't actually take a dead bait. So uh, that probably explains that. But Turbot and, and Brill and Gurnard's Tope, We've one wreck in particular, we used to fish Tope in August and the slap water, the, like the dead tide in August. But the Tope the weren't actually on the wreck. They were as the tide eased and you drifted off the wreck and there was quite a lot of Tope there. And sharks we've had all over the place, you know, we've picked up sharks, particularly poor beagles, following fish up, you know, when you're winching up. And we have caught a few of them, you know, over the years some we've actually hooked and fought to a standstill we had i don't know what it was um 250 or 280 pound pool beagle once on a on a conga trace on wire line which was quite exciting and um by the time we got it aboard i think everybody on the boat had had a go on it you know it was, it was in 120 meters of water and, and it went to the bottom four times so it was a hell of a fight big female and um, it was on multi-strand wire line, and by the time we we got it in, when we finally got a gaff in it and got it aboard the boat, the tip roller on the rod was was cut in half completely, and there was just the shaft left in the middle. And and I had, with a, the local paper actually, the local press, I had the crowd from there out one day when I had the Midnight Moon, you know, the the, the trawler there, and um, a poor people came up alongside the boat, chomping on a ling that had just come to the surface, and I and I gaffed it, Um as it bit the ling and sort of said, give me a hand here. I looked round and there wasn't, there wasn't a punter in sight. They, the bow and the stern of the boat was full of full of anglers, but I was standing in the middle with this shark in my hand with nobody giving me a hand. They're all gone. And that was £140, but uh, it wasn't actually hooked. It was just swam past the boat and I stopped the gaff in it.
0: So there are still plenty of fish out of them in channel wrecks. Well, some species anyway. But what are the prospects of finding virgin wrecks loaded with everything like they were when serious wrecking first kicked off? There must still be unlocated wrecks, but would they necessarily have more and better fish than known wrecks in the vicinity?
1: I think those days are gone, in all honesty. When I first started, we spent a lot of time and effort getting trawl charts mostly. There was a, a guy in Cherbourg called Jacques Fion, and he had a deal with all the French trawlers in Cherbourg. They used to bring him their charts every year for updating and he would take the information, you know, the new information, the new hookies they'd found, the new wrecks they'd found and things like that, towing a trawl around the bottom. He would take those onto his database, Well, all by hand of course, but on his database. And he would update their charts with all the hookies and wrecks and things that the other fishermen had found from Schwerberg. Um And when we first started, we actually got a complete set of charts for the whole channel from him. And we had the Admiralty printout, but the Admiralty printout was terrible and we paid quite a lot of money for it and it was very, very inaccurate. The trawl charts from Brixham as well, from the beamers there, they had the wrecks marked on, you know. So there was quite a lot of virgin wrecks at the time. That that I-20 that I mentioned before, I had some numbers for that, and I was fishing a wreck about three miles away, and I could see a French trawler going round and round in that area. So I thought, he must be fishing the wreck. I'll go over there and, and fish it with him. And when I got there, you know, I didn't speak to him, but I sort of thought, okay, this is where it is. And I was looking, and I couldn't find it. But I found a little gully, and we had four or five boxes of cod in, in an hour. And then just as we were finishing up, the Frenchman came alongside me and asked me where the wreck was. So he actually didn't know where it was. But I knew where he'd been fishing and where I'd found the fish. And I said, well, it's it's just west of me here. And I, I actually know now I was fishing a gully that the wreck sits across. And I was fishing just off the end of the wreck. And we went back the next day, and, and he'd, he'd found it during the night, and, and he'd put a, a flag float on it. I think we took five tonne of cod off that particular wreck in in the first week, and and the two French trawlers that were working it took 28 tonne apiece, I think, of fish. So that's what a virgin wreck was like at that time. But now the channel has been surveyed so many times now by different people. The Admiralty and Chom, I think they're called from France, they've done a huge amount of surveying the last few years, and they're gradually releasing all the wreck numbers. There was a massive survey I it was fifteen or twenty years ago there was a massive survey north of Alderney there for mostly for cables. But that was if the whole channel was surveyed and, and I can remember Chris Tett from Weymouth, he had a, a printout from them that he'd pay quite a lot of money for, and it had every wreck from the caskets across to the English coast in that centre block there above Alderney. So it's all been surveyed. There's you know, there's not much. But saying that, the last year or the last two years I think I was charter fishing, I found a gully purely by chance, a, a very deep gully west of the caskets there. It, it was sort of a 20 meter sheer cliff. And I've never, ever seen so much pollock. And that, you know, you go along, it's about 80, 85 meters there. And then suddenly it dropped down to, to 100 meters and then came up to 75 meters. You know, the, the, the two sides of the, of the gully are different heights. And, uh, we had a, an incredible couple of years off there, pollock fishing. I mean, there was tons and tons there. You can go there and, and just fish all day, every day with angling part. It was marvellous. But since I gave up chartering in, in about 95, I think I gave up chartering in 96, the charter boats hammered that and now it's not very good at all. Still get a few fish there. but So there are places to find, but not necessarily wrecks.
0: So far we've been looking specifically at the wreck fishing. But I've probably done as many bank fishing trips with you as I have visits to the wrecks. Something the Channel Islands certainly has no shortage of. In fact, I got my personal best Basel 13 too on one of your trips. So tell us a bit now about the banks and how they've formed. They're formed by slack water. Basically, nearly all the banks around here are made up
1: of shell, pieces of shell. And it's very light, it's in suspension in the water. And where you have the lee behind the islands, you know, there's, there's Bank of North, for instance, is north of Sark. And when the tide is on the flood, which is running north around Sark, There's a massive slack area of water there, you know, area of slack water. And the sand, or or shell, falls out of suspension. And then, uh, again, south end of Sark, the the godey in which you will have fished me, I'm sure, when you were over here, there's a bank there, a massive bank. Again, that's mostly shell, very, very light gravel. And that's uh, that's the ebb slack there, and that bank there runs for several miles. It runs almost down to Jersey in fact it does run down to jersey in, in places there there are bits of bank all the way down there and it's all caused by the the tidal eddies around the islands we have a bank outside the harbor between guernsey and, and herm we call it the great bank which is where all our sand deals come from now that's slightly different that's slightly harder that's that's more sand than gravel but there are places on it that are very very soft you know I, I've dived it quite a lot and and done quite a lot of um, uh, setting trawls up there you know diving on top of trawls when they're being towed there and some of it's quite hard. And then then you'll just suddenly have a bank, sticks up above the bank, if you know what I mean, a high point, and that's very soft. But again, that's caused by the ebb slack. There's no slack there on the, on the flood, but on on the ebb, the way the islands are laid out, there's a massive slack there. And then the Shoal Bank, which is halfway between Guernsey and, or a third of the way between Guernsey and, and the French coast, I think that's caused by the slack water from Alderney and the, and the French coast. Because it's, there's nothing immediately around it. And that's, that's a massive area of gravel. And then above that you have the south banks of Alderney. You know, that's caused by the ebb slack or the, and the young flood slack from Alderney. There's a bank above Alderney again, which is caused by the the flood slack. Caskets is the same. There's, there's three banks at the caskets that we fish regularly. One of those is very, very hard sand where the other two are, are normal gravel. And caused by the extension of the reefs west of Aldney right out to the Caskets and, and Buru, which is halfway between. But again, it, it's the slack water behind that, and possibly this, the pressure wave on the flood, and then massive slack on the ebb. And what we didn't realise to some extent when we used to use the Decker system, because we had you know individual charts for these banks, when you put them on a on a plotter now, and you blow up and you you bring up the the whole all of the islands in, on one screen and you've got all your banks marked, and you can actually see as a strip of gravel runs from northwest of the caskets right down towards the east coast of Jersey, and as a strip of gravel runs all the way through there and and the banks. So the whole bottom is gravel, and the banks are the places where it's stacked up with the slack water.
0: When you drift these banks with the swirls and back eddies, it quickly becomes apparent that there must be features down there affecting the tide. Features which in the different ways are also going to be attractive to fish. So what can you tell us about the geography of a typical bank, and what features attract which fish?
1: What attracts the fish is the sand eels. When you dive any of these banks, you can barely see the bottom for sand eels. They're almost liquid gravel, particularly the shoal bank. The the shoal bank, even as a diver, you can almost swim into the bottom. The whole thing's on the move constantly. And there are millions and millions of sand eels in the summer. And even in the winter, there's an awful lot, but a lot more in the summer. And you can, if you scare the sand eels shoal, they just disappear. They just swim straight into this liquid gravel and disappear. And all the banks have got sand eels on. If you if you get a bank that for some reason um one year hasn't got many sand eels on at all, then it's a very poor fishing year on that bank. And, you know, we have places, hundreds of places that we fish around reefs and things. And we actually fish, a you know, a small sand bank in the lee of a reef. But if you have a westerly winter or a norwesterly winter or whatever with the weather that gravel can disappear from that particular reef for a year or two. And when that happens you get no pollock turns up no flatfish anything. So it's dependent on the sand eels almost everywhere around here. The top of the bank, um, well all the banks are very very undulating. Alderney Bank is probably the most undulating. The banks go up and down 10 to 20 metres and very very steep. When you're on them diving you can actually slide down them you know they're that sheer if you were if you were skiing you could ski down them. they're that plumb and then the top of the shoal for instance there's large flat areas and then there's a, there's a crown runs the whole length of the bank and the western side of that crown drops away 20 meters almost sheer you know and then west of that crown it drops down to 25 30 meters and there's almost there's fingers if you know what i mean the banks, instead of running north-south, which is what the Crown runs, the fingers run east-west, and they are much, they're still up and down 10 or 15 metres, but they're they're much slower slopes. There's places of slack water for fish to shelter in all over the banks. Whatever direction the the tide is running, there's places for for the fish to hide. But fish like bass or pollock and things like that, they tend to go with the tide. We now know, we didn't in in the early years, but we do now that you can pick up a a shoal of bass at a certain state of tide at a certain spot where you fish it. And if you're clever with a sounder, you can actually follow that shoal of bass right through the tide and it will go, it'll do the same run every day on a spring tide, for instance. And it'll go fair tide all day. The fish doesn't stop. The fish moves with the tide and whether that's mackerel or, or bass or bream or whatever, any shoal fish that doesn't actually get behind, you know, hide behind something. It moves fair tide all day.
0: And just to tie up any loose ends, what about the other sorts of fish holding features and marks that might hold a few good fish?
1: I think all features hold fish of some sort. Whether it's boulder ground or rough ground or whether it's massive reef. Different species of fish prefer different types of ground. Pollock, which is probably our most commonly fished fish around the islands. Almost every reef has pollock on. Some of them have lots and lots of pollock, you know, massive shoals of pollock, and, and they're fished commercially. Some of them only have a few small pollock on, but almost every reef has pollock and rass, of course. You know, the, anything less than 30 meters of water in the summer, there's there's rass everywhere, right up to the tide line, and there's bream in in season and garfish everywhere. Where generally in in the edges, the garfish generally tend to hang in the in the edge of the tide, where you have it coming around headlands or reefs and things like that. But every feature, whether it's a, a sandbank, whether it's a sandy bottom, which is completely different in, in some respects, or a reef or, or rough ground, will have its own particular type of fish. And, um, from a charter skipper's point of view, it's very easy to, um, to change your type of fishing and fish the different types of fish.
0: You mentioned back at the beginning that you're currently using automated jigging machines. In some ways, a robotic, non-paying charter party, if you like. But because there is no charter fee to fall back on, you have to catch as many fish as you can. So your tactics presumably need to be as good as it gets. What then might rotten line anglers learn from this experience? Well it's it's slightly different,
1: Phil, in that you know, I have to catch an amount of fish, you know, it's costing us two hundred pounds a day in, in fuel and expenses to be there. So we have to catch quite a lot of fish, so we can't drift round a bank. If you're drifting round a bank for pleasure and, and you want to catch a nice big turbot or, or, uh, uh, you know, one or two bass or something like that. We've always worked a long flowing trace dragged on the bottom, on the banks with a, with a sandy or live sandy or bait or, or, um, fishing for turbot, a fillet of garfish or a fillet of sandy or fillet of mackerel for that matter. But from a commercial point of view, that's just not enough. You know, I, if I'm going to go to that bank, I have to go there for the, the right state of time and fish for an hour or two when I think it will be most productive. Then I have to move somewhere else. So you have to think a lot more about it when you're commercial. When you're, when your day is good, when you leave the harbour with an angling party, it's much easier in, in some respects. It's harder on the head having to deal with the customers all the time, but it's easier in, from the fishing point of view. And, and it's different tactics. You know, we use multi hooks when we're fishing for pollock, for instance. We use five hooks generally on a trace, where if you're fishing for pleasure, you use one. I generally use, if I'm fishing with a rod, I use two hooks on a long flowing trace, although my trace is normally about seven fathom long. But I use two hooks. I think you work more efficiently because you get a chasing effect. You get a small bait on the first hook, a three or four row hook or something like that, with a small sand on, and a nice big sand on the end hook, for instance, fishing for a bass. You get a chasing effect. You know, that bass sees a small fish go past with a big sandeel chasing it. And I think that winds it up, where if you're there purely for pleasure... A single hook's enough. You don't want to catch two fish if if that happens occasionally. But you don't want the work. So there is a slightly different um, attitude to it, really.
0: Your other big passion in life outside of fishing is scuba diving. I've seen some first-hand experience of this when I dropped my rod button and reel into the harbour, and you put the wetsuit on to go down and get it. It was like a scene from Excalibur when your arm came up out of the water, holding the thing. And I also know that you use these skills in a very unusual way. Trawl riding. So explain to us what that's all about.
1: <laughs> I've done a lot of diving, you know, as I said earlier on, I came into commercial fishing from diving really, I started out commercial diving. And I still love to dive, I, I go away on holiday and, and dive, you know. But um when you set up a trawl, when you put a new trawl on a boat, or a new set of doors, or, or you change your system, it can take you a long time to get it set up correctly, because you have to make very small adjustments each time to get it right. And everybody thinks, or sees a trawl on a video going across the bottom, you think, oh, look at that, that's that's real brute force and ignorance. But it actually isn't. It's quite a, a delicate setup to get it catching really efficiently. And particularly around here, where you're towing these these sandbanks, and like I say, some of them are liquid sand. And if your trawl is set up slightly wrong, it just buries in the sand. You can't tow it at all. So it's quite a, a difficult thing to set up. And what I found was, if I dived down on the, the bank outside the harbour, the Great Bank there, which is only... 10 metres on the top, half-tide, slack water, I could actually slide down the wire and ride the trawl with my scooper gear on, towing slowly, don't tow too fast, but tow slowly, and I could see how the trawl was set up, and and the way a trawl is put together is put together with netting panels, and when it's being towed, you can actually see the seams in the panels, and those seams are supposed to be dead square to where it's being towed, and, and dead plumb if you're looking from the side. And the foot rope, which is the, the bit that takes the ground, is supposed to be doing certain things so the fish can't escape, you know, pass underneath it or, or whatever. Or digging too hard so you can't tow it. So, I could do a month's work really in, in five or ten minutes. So, or a month's adjustments in five or ten minutes just going down and, and seeing it. It was very interesting. And I've taken some video and stuff as well. It's, uh, quite interesting to do. Is that not a bit dangerous? It's not very dangerous at all, but you don't actually go, you don't go in the trawl. You have to have your mask strapped quite tight because you don't want your mask blowing off in the the current that you're towing into. And I don't know if you know how a regulator works, but a regulator has a diaphragm in it. And the water pressure equalises each side of the diaphragm to give you your air. So if you face the current, so to speak, with this diaphragm, it can actually give you too much air. So you just have to keep the current flowing across it rather than directly against it. But other than that, the trawl, when it's being towed, it's almost like a steel frame. Because the water pressure is pressing on all the netting, and it's very, very rigid, and you can actually climb all over it quite easily. And if anything goes wrong, you just leave go, and you you swim to the surface. And then we we always, whenever we've done it, we've always had a a, a guard boat a hundred yards astern, and someone on the lookout just in case you do come up off the trawl. But uh, never had a problem with it at all. And like I say very, very interesting to see fish on the seabed reacting to a you know a set of trawl doors or or a. Um, a foot rope going up along the bottom is very, very interesting, and to see how they react, actually, as they go into the trawl, you learn a lot very quickly.
0: And has your diving ever made any contribution to either your charter or your commercial fishing interests, for example, by checking out marks or features?
1: No, not really. I must admit, I've always fancied doing a, a video, uh, you know, a fishing video, and some of it was underwater. So you, you know, the normal fishing video is on the surface. And you show the lines being set up and the bait being prepared and all this sort of stuff, a standard job, fish coming up. But I've always fancied doing the, the underwater job as well, where you see the bait come down and the fish reacting to it and taking the bait and whatever. I think it would make an interesting video, but I've never really got round to it.
0: Now I know that this passion for diving has also got you into trouble in the past. I think you know the occasion I'm talking about, so let's hear your take on that story. <laughs>
1: Well, when I had the Midnight Express, the Aquastar, I used to always carry my diving gear, partly if I got a rope and a prop or anything like that, and, and if I didn't have a charter trip that day, I'd go off and do some diving. And we were up at, uh, at Alderney one day, and, and you know, you, you fish the flood tide, fished very well, and then you have a couple of hours of, of slack water, which is, is pretty boring, really. Everybody sort of has a kip down the deck whenever waiting for the for the ebb to start. And I decided that I would go for a dive. Now, my crew at the time was, was a ex-crabber skipper, so very, very competent crew. They worked for me for two or three years and, and quite capable of taking a boat out, no problem at all. So that, that, you know, there was no danger from that point of view. So, I went inshore, you know, on the south banks here, went quite well inshore, got my diving gear on, and I had, um, a hand spear to sit, you know, for, for ray or flatties or anything like that. And that was fixed to, to, um, a line, a rope line that was nice long line. And then, um, a 30 inch float, 30 inch soft float, which normally is, is big enough to stay on the surface for the boat to follow. If you, if you've got too big a float, it's very difficult to move on the bottom because the, the float literally, you know, you're fighting against the float all the time. So I jumped over the side on the, about the shallowest bit of the south banks here. It's, um, about halfway up the south banks. Hit to the bottom. And w- when I was on the surface, it was still the last of the flood going. So it was running. Uh, running north the tide. But when I got to the bottom, it, I, did, I mean I didn't know because I didn't have a compass on, but it, the tide on the bottom was actually already, the ebb was starting it was running the other way. So what happened was, somewhere up between the, the bottom and the surface, there was actually a rip and the tides were running opposite directions. So the float that the boat was supposed to be following disappeared under the surface because it wasn't big enough to stay up and the the boat lost me. And of course the boat continued to go up with the tide towards the coast of Albany or along the coast of Albany and I went down with the tide towards the French coast and I got lost so um, Paul that was skipping the boat was on the boat in charge he put out a, a mayday I think it was and said I was or, or called up Albany radio and said I was missing so the lifeboat came out and air search and and all the boats that were in the area were looking for me as well and I was drifting away towards the French coast and everybody was going up the coast the way the surfaced water was going, because they thought that was the way I'd gone. And I was lost for two and a half hours. So what's going through your
0: head at this time?
1: Well, I was just thinking, look at all these idiots steaming past me, because three or four boats went right past me, not paying attention, because they were they were going to the area where they'd been told to look, which was two or three miles to the north of me. And then the, we have a search plane here, a um, voluntary search plane, called Channel Islands Air Search, and they were flying over me And they went over me four or five times, I think. And they didn't see me. And I, and when you're in the water, I'd already dumped my my diving gear, you know, my tank and everything, so I was floating higher in the water. And the plane wasn't seeing me. So what I did, I put my flipper, which was, you know, quite a big black piece of rubber, you know, commercial fins, they're quite big. I put it on my hand and I actually waved my flipper. And I'm told, because I know the guys involved, that Air Search had actually finished that particular box and the navigator, who is not supposed to look out the plane, he's just supposed to navigate, he actually reached into the back of the plane to get another chart, or a chart of the next block or something, and he saw me out the, the side window of the plane. He actually saw the black flipper. So it was the right thing to do. But um, it was quite worrying. I, was, I thought I was going to you know, go into France for breakfast, really. I was drifted off that way. And by the time they picked me up, I wasn't cold at all. i had been in the water about two and a half hours, I think. I wasn't cold, but... I was getting very, very tired because I'd been every time you know a boat had come past, I'd been finning hard to get my upper body out of the water, so I, you know I could wave if, at them if you know what I mean, and uh, it was quite exhausting. I was getting to the stage where I wasn't going to do a lot of finning to lift my body out of the water. I was just going to drift, and so I was glad to get picked up. But I wasn't particularly worried. But uh, the people on the boat, my um, my clients, which were Dutch. And some of them had been coming with me for many years. They were good friends and they were very, very upset. They were very worried. But I wasn't. But that night we were supposed to go to a party at one of the fishermen's houses actually, uh, in a, you know, jacuzzi party. And when I got back on the boat, when the lifeboat dropped me back aboard the boat, my crew said to me, um, what, what about this party tonight? I said, we're going for sure because we've got, you know, we've got to celebrate that I got picked up. And when I got walked out with a drink in my hand and my bathers on to get in this, in this jacuzzi, they had a 120-inch float, with you know, a big, great big pot float, and a fathom of rope to tie around my ankle so I wouldn't get lost in his jacuzzi.
0: And also, all of the authorities were too happy with you, though, as you were still charter fishing at that stage.
1: I was, yes, and, and of course I was in charge of the boat, and, and Paul actually didn't have a have a licence to skip of the boat, so I did get in trouble for it. I, it was it, quite strange, really, because, you know, the next day I went straight up the, the harbour office, which was my governing body, and Got a severe telling off and, and sorted it out and don't do it again. No, I won't. And that was it sorted really. And over the next four or five days, I had trial by media. The local press got hold of it and the local television, that sort of stuff. And in it, I ended up with a month suspension. But it was the last month of my season or the last fortnight of my season, I think. So I had to employ a, a licensed skipper to come out with me to be in charge. I mean, I still skippered the boat and, and put the boat on the fish, but he actually. I had to pay someone to come with me and be in charge with a license for the last fortnight. So it was inconvenient, but uh, it was um, just just one of those things, really. If I'd had a bigger float on, uh, it wouldn't have been a problem. And
0: um, I didn't know that I, uh, there was a riptide there at that state of tide, but I certainly do now. And what contribution, if any, did that make to your switch from angling to commercial fishing? Uh, nothing at all, no. No, the main reason I got out of charter fishing, my, my son at the time was
1: coming into fishing and I wanted to work with him, and um, he didn't like the charter fishing. He was much more interested in trawling, so I, I bought a small trawler, and we, we worked together. Fought like cat and dog, as it was, but there we are. Um, it was very interesting. I believe you then had a double at per trawling. No, I wasn't. At that stage, I started off with um, a 10-metre steel trawler. Quite a powerful 10-metre trawler, what they called what, a rule beater at the time. And we did very well, and we, we set a, a beam trawl up, and we were working a patch between Sark and the French coast there, east of Sark, and catching a lot of sole. And then, after that, my boy went off and, and got his own boat, and I carried on with that one. And we started marketing our fish in France. And it was about 50% better prices, you know, landing in France. But the boat really wasn't big enough, so I bought a bigger boat. And, then I, when I had the bigger boat, then I started getting into uh, into the pelagic trawling. Single boat to start with, which was towing a trawl off the bottom, you know, a, a targeted trawling really. You'd spot a shoal of fish and set the trawl at the height to catch them. And you had an echo sounder on the top of the trawl and sonar on the boat and that sort of stuff. It was very interesting trawling. From that, I went into pair trawling. I went into pair trawling with my son to start with because it's much more efficient. It's something like seven times more efficient, I think, pair trawling than single boat trawling because straight away you haven't got any trawl doors to spread the gear. The boats just stay further apart and we gradually developed the the pair trawling. It It was very interesting times.
0: And what sorts of catches were you picking up?
1: We set it up originally for catching bream. At the time there was a massive stock of bream off our west coast in the winter, from January onwards really for about three months, and a very, very good market in France for black bream. They weren't particularly big. Good fish would be a pound or two pound, that, that sort of size, but the shoal sometimes was sort of 20 metres thick and, and 10 miles long, it was a massive shoals, and we did very well on it. Price wasn't all that great, it was only sort of 50 pence or a pound a kilo or something like that, but we were doing 10 or 20 tonnes a night between the two boats, so it was it was big amounts of fish.
0: Did he ever really get into the bass?
1: I'd say we, we caught little bits of bass, we caught half tonnes and tonnes of bass, but we weren't targeting them, we didn't. We bumped into them now and again, but we weren't really targeting them, but later on there was a huge amount of bass found on our west coast, the, the anglers found, um, or commercial fishermen really, found a, a patch on the west coast there that, that had hundreds of tons of bass on, and they started fishing with rod and line, and there was some incredible fishing there, um, would be, when they find it, 2000 I think they found it, something like that, and where the bass were, they're on, they're on massive reefs, so we couldn't go near them with a pelagic trawl. What we found was, at certain states of tide, the tide actually pulled some of the bass off the reefs, and we could take them with a the pelagic trawl, and we did have some, some big catches, yeah, you know, and we had
0: some massive catches. Any notable individuals amongst them?
1: No, I don't, think, I don't think we had any big fish. I think 17 or 18 pound was about as big as we actually picked out, but, I mean, we caught many tons of them, you know, so we didn't particularly look. I mean, if, if a fish stood out, we'd perhaps got it weighed. But I don't think there was any, there was no monsters, there was nothing, you know, 20 pound, but there was certainly some 17 and 18, but, and lots of them. But the, the boats fishing with rod and line, which is how they were fishing it, they were catching the same, they were catching a, you know, huge amount of double figure fish. And, um, one of the charter boats was going out there with three or four guys and, and doing 20 boxes in four or five hours, so they were catching a lot of bass.
0: Why the switch then to the
1: jigging machines? To run a big trawler like that and to, you know, employ two or three crew and there was a pair and there's another boat involved in that as well and, and the guy I was involved with was very very hungry so he wanted to be out there all the time. I was at sea you know six days a week 24 hours a day really. When I wasn't at sea I was in France or or England landing my fish. I just didn't get home at all for three or four years. You know you get home one day a week if you were lucky and, and uh, I just got cheese off at of it in the end. I was sort of mid-fifties and, and never at home and uh so I just had enough. So I said, right, I said I'm going to sell the trawler and, and go back to a small boat and, and and enjoy my fishing. I enjoyed the trawling, I, I really did, but it just got incredibly hard work, and and the, the fuel prices as well going up like they did. We were burning a thousand litres of fuel a day. It's it's big expenses.
0: What you've actually given us so far is an insight into some incredible fishing potential from both the angling and the commercial perspective. Compared to the mainland, it's holding up very well, and for a number of reasons, not the least of which is favourable climate and non-membership of the European Union. But will that strong showing, in your opinion, continue on into the future?
1: I think it always has. I would have said the best fishing in Europe in, in some ways. Because of the tides and things, we have very little small fish around here. There's nursery areas that I know of on the English coast for bass and flatfish and all sorts of stuff. But the only nursery areas we have here are right in the bays. Anything outside the bays where the tide is, there's big fish. And there always has been. And, uh, I mean, when I was chartering, certainly I would have said it was as good as anywhere in Europe, really. And I think it still is, and I think it will stay that way. You know, the, There's so little fishing around here, commercial fishing, really, compared to some places. And the the way the, the tides are, as long as, as long as the banks stay there and the sand eels stay there, you know, as long as we don't get wind farms or or underwater tidal generators or something that that mess it all up i think it'll carry on indefinitely i can't see why not it's uh, it's, in some ways it's better than it's ever been fish stocks come and go and they always have done i think long before we were here and i don't think that will change no i think it's very good film
0: i actually toyed with the idea of trailing my own boat across some years ago and approached the tourist board with the idea but with so many reefs and rocks dotted about the place the harbour master would hear nothing of it so on that basis, the tourist board couldn't really support the venture. Was he right to put the stops on it, do you think?
1: No. No. With modern electronics, it's safe as houses. Yeah, I can't see a problem at all. with with. Uh, I mean, we've, we've got a massive kayak fleet here now, I think, they've taken off everywhere, but they've sold hundreds and hundreds here. They're a problem, you know. They're fine if they're used sensibly in the bays and places like that, but when we see them out between the islands and, and coming out in the channel and places like that, that's not safe, but there's loads and loads of... Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know how many, but there's a huge amount of people here have 20-footers, 20 21-footers, 23-footers with big outboards on and things, and they go all over the place. And with modern electronics, I just cannot see a problem.
0: Yeah, it would have been good, but it wasn't to be. Right, last question now. What is the future for Dougal Lane?
1: <laughs> well, we don't know, actually. I mean, if, if the fuel prices keep going up, I'll have to get out of commercial fishing, I think. Our product, it's food. And the prices of food are controlled by the supermarkets. And the supermarkets push every day to keep the price of food down. And our costs have gone up and up dramatically. You know, Our fuel prices, when I first started, fuel was 9 pence a litre. And now it's 64 pence a litre, I'm paying for it at the moment. So our main cost has gone up dramatically. Everything we buy for the boats is, is made from hydrocarbons. Every bit of fibreglass, every bit of rope, everything we buy really is oil related. And it's getting incredibly expensive to, to run these boats. So um I'm not sure. I mean, I might I might have to go back to chartering, in all honesty because that's guaranteed. I shall stay in fishing as long as I can, as long as it stays viable.
0: Well, the fish are certainly there for you. So in that regard, you'd have no problem getting the bookings.
1: Yeah, the fish is there. There's no doubt about it, but it's it's no good catching it unless you get a decent price for it. And our prices haven't kept up with inflation, in all honesty.
0: I think it's perhaps time I made another approach to the tourist board via the harbour master. The fishing we've just talked about for the past hour or so has certainly re-wetted my appetite. My thanks then to Dougal Lane, for giving us such an appetising insight into the waters and the fishing around the Guernsey coast.